At the risk of quoting Mark Twain too often, my favorite extra-biblical quotation about the Bible is this quotation. It isn't the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. Unfortunately, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is as bothersome to some as it is clear. And if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18, I think you'll see why Mark Twain probably would have understood Matthew 18, but Mark Twain would have been bothered by Matthew 18. We're going to study Matthew 18 today, verses 10, uh, verse 15 to 20. And we're doing that because oh, it's probably been four years, according to my record, since we've actually uh, looked at this passage in any detail. And I know a lot of you have come uh, since four years ago, so I think it'll be helpful. Also, just because of circumstances, we actually need to, to, to do um, what it says in Matthew 18 today, and so it's appropriate for us to be able to, to stop what we would maybe rather do and what we would have planned to do in Romans chapter 10 and uh, resume that next week. If you just read that text with me, you'll see what I'm getting at. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault in private. Or excuse me, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And now you know what I mean if you didn't know what I meant before. It's talking about dealing with sin, dealing with sin in the church, in the body of Christ, and it makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. It's kind of ironic, though, that talking about sin in church would make me feel uncomfortable. After all, there's a giant cross behind me that has everything to do with sin. It has everything to do with the fact that we are sinners, and Jesus came here to live the life we could never live on our behalf and to, to die a sinner's death, though he never sinned, and to rise again from the dead so that we wouldn't have to live in sin anymore. Well, that's about sin. Christianity is about sin. It's about forgiveness from sin. It's about gaining the righteousness of Christ, even though we deserve to pay for our sin. It's about being united with Christ in His resurrection, so we're free. We don't have to sin anymore. So in so many ways, we're a lot about sin. <coughs> Just in time. Excuse me for that. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to be able to see that there are clearly four steps. Let's call them four mandatory steps for us as a church if we're going to have purity in the church. Maybe one more introductory comment. And it would be, what's interesting, and I'll reference this probably multiple times, is 
we're uncomfortable because it's about sin. That doesn't really make sense because Christianity is dealing with sin. We're also uncomfortable because it's not what we might want to do. In Matthew 16, Jesus calls the church his church. He says, I will build my church. It makes me more comfortable. We're not talking about my church. We're not talking about your church. We're not talking about our church. And so it's not really up to us to, to, to draw up what the uh, membership requirements are going to be. It's not really up to us to try to figure out how to make it work best. Jesus said, church is mine, I'm building it. And now in Matthew 18, he tells us one of the things we're supposed to do in his church. And so I'm so thankful that we don't need to decide whether or not these things are right or wrong. Obviously, they're right because this is what Christ has done. Step number one, the first mandatory step for purity in Christ's church that we need to commit ourselves to, if we haven't, is private confrontation. It's private confrontation. Look at verse 15 with me again, if you would, page 702, if you're new to the Bible, and it says, if your brother sins, and even most literally it would be just sins, it's not even against you, it would apply to being against you, but some of your translations don't add against you, and that's more appropriate. Some of your translations have a marginal note, but most literally it would be if your brother sins against you or against someone else. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice, it's private, but it is confrontation between you and him alone. Maybe it would be helpful for us to sort of answer the who, what, when, where, and why questions just so we can kind of get at what Jesus is getting at in case we're going to miss it. Who's involved here, he says, if your brother sins? He's talking about someone who's in your spiritual family, obviously. There's really no debate about that. He's not talking about the person who's in your family, your literal brother, though it may apply there. But your spiritual relatives, whether it be your spiritual brother or your spiritual sister. He's talking about people who are within the family. He's not, and we'll see this later as well in 1 Corinthians, he's not talking about people who are not professing Christians. This is people who are part of the believing community. And we would be very errant if we were trying to apply this to everyone, people who don't even say they're brothers or sisters in Christ. So that's important to know. Then if we continue on, it's a, if we answer the question, what... Well, he says sin. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't say big sins. He doesn't say medium-sized sins. He just says sins. You mean lying? Yeah. You mean gossip? That would be sin. Um, you mean, I guess you just talk about whatever kind of sin. It's kind of interesting, too, that he doesn't tell us which kinds, and he doesn't do that on purpose. He just... This includes sin. Remember, too, even the original sin, it wasn't a, a, a traditionally labeled big sin. It was a little thing. What made it so big is who it was against. 
What made that original sin such a big deal is it was in effect saying, well, we know what you say, God, but we're going to do whatever we want to do. In other words, functionally, we're God, you're not. We're in charge, you're not. That's a big deal. <laughs> and so he doesn't have to say this is for the big kind of you know, stereotypical sins. No, this is just sin. Sin is, is dangerous. Sin is offensive. Sin is, in effect, saying, God, you're not really God, and you have no right to tell me what to do. So it's good that he leaves it this way. If we answered the question when, it doesn't really answer that for us. Apparently, you just do this when you know that it's happening. Because you love someone, you're going you're gonna to help them when you know that there's a problem. And because you love God, you're going to do this because you see that there's a problem. Where? It does tell us. It says alone. It says alone. This is crucial for us, Right? Don't call 573-1897 and ask for a pastor. Hey, pastor, I have a concern. When I hear that, I'm going, um, would you please not name any names? <laughs> and if you start naming names, I'm going to be going la, 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 like little kids do. It says alone. And so let me be a pastor now and, and say to you who profess Christ, this is your responsibility as a brother or sister in Christ, part of the family, and it's your responsibility to do this out of love for a fellow brother or sister and out of love for God who says this is the best thing, but to do it alone. It's a private matter. You know, in one sense, we could say this, this is something that, in one sense, is probably happening a lot and we don't know about it. We shouldn't know about it. You go to them in private. And you say, you know what, I love you and, and I care about you and, and, and I have a concern. It's not time for gossip. It's not time for sharing with anybody else. It's, I don't want you to wreck your life. I, I, I don't want you to, to dishonor Christ. I don't want you to continue to hurt your family. How can I help you? No doubt the emphasis is helping them. That question why would tell us that. It says to win your brother. To do what's beneficial for your brother or your sister we would know. He gives us an explicit reason as to why. I think there are many other reasons why too. Why would you go to someone? Man, that's the last thing in the world I want to do. I want to tell somebody else about it so they go. I don't like conflict. I don't want a personal conflict. I don't want any part of it. Why would I go? Well, I would go because, because sin destroys. I would go because sin offends Christ. And, and I would go because Christ says to go. And I would go because actually discipline, if this, you want to call this discipline, is, is a good thing. Re read in the book of Hebrews where, where we learn that God disciplines all of His children. As a matter of fact, the argumentation in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, basically says if, if there is no discipline, you're, you're, you're not a legitimate child. And so if I can just use that logic a little bit, if I see someone in sin, 
as a fellow Christian, I want to go to them and love them and say, how can I help you? Because if I don't, I'm treating them like they're an illegitimate child. If I can borrow that logic. Well, that's not very loving. See, we want to say this isn't loving. Which is to say, Jesus, you're not loving, which is a big problem. (laughs) Okay? In our culture, this seems unloving. But in Christ's culture, in God's world, last time I checked, God is love. Um, Trump's culture. In God's world, this is loving. Because this is what he does with all of his children. And so I know this is controversial. I know this makes us uncomfortable. It certainly makes me uncomfortable. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord reproves him or disciplines him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So we're just trying to do what God says and acting like God would want us to act. It's also a great test for us to acknowledge whether or not we think Jesus is serious when he says it's my church. You know? If I say, all right, I know the Bible says this, but I think we're going to do something different. What you should say to your spouse or your mom or your dad or whoever, you could say, What's with Pat? Who does he think he is? Jesus Christ or something? And the answer to that question would be, he does. Because he is mandating what is to be done in the church. And he's acting like it's his. When in fact, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so when we don't want to do what Jesus says, we have a Christ complex. That's a bad idea. That's ugly. There's a problem. And so let's try to keep these things in mind as we we want to feel the responsibility. We don't want to be like the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 where they were known for tolerating sin and Jesus just blasts them. We don't want to be Pergamum Bible Church of Omaha. For the love of those in this room, for the love of other professing Christians, for the love of Christ, please, I'm pleading with you as a pastor, please do this for the glory of Christ, for for the glory of His church, for the love of your fellow men and women. Don't become the disciplined Gestapo with some sort of you know, bad attitude because you love conflict. If you love conflict, we'd love to come and talk to you. <laughs> but in love and, and care and concern, this is the right thing. And if you need help, I would love to have you call 573-1897. If it is, Pastor, I'm not really sure how to go about doing this. I know I need to do this, but can you help me with the practical steps? Yes, let's do that. We'll have a healthier church. Christ will be honored like He wouldn't be otherwise. And we won't be acting like it's our church. 
Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Heavy stuff, huh? Mandatory step number two for purity in Christ's church would be private confrontation with witnesses. We can do this one real easily because it's basically the same as step one. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Well, that's the only difference. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Same thing. So, if I'm in sin, whatever it might be, and you come to me and you say, Pat, I care about you, I I love you, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I'm concerned and and here's what's going on and it really is going on and I blow you off, well, then you're obligated not to call the church, not to share prayer requests, quote-unquote. You're obligated to find some, maybe some other responsible Christians who won't be gossips and bring them and, and come to me so you can collectively then say, Pat, we, we care about you. Probably would be a good idea to say it seems we're at step two here of Matthew 18, just to be clear. And you'd say, Pat, what can we do to help you? We love you and we love Christ and, 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 and we'll do whatever we need to do to help you. We want you to turn from your sin. We don't want you to de- destroy your family's life. We don't want you to destroy your life. We don't want you to dishonor Christ. Furthering the hypocrisy. We don't want to put fuel on the fire of all the unbelievers who say, there it is, another Christian. Hypocrites. You saw it in the news this past week. You watch the news. That's why this is so good. That's why this is so healthy, even though it makes us uncomfortable. Third mandatory step for purity in Christ's church is public confrontation. And maybe we should modify that as semi-public confrontation because it's limited to the church. It's not in the public square. It's limited to us. Circumstantially, we're, we're... talking about this this morning because we're actually needing to do this this morning at the end of the service. Look at verse 17 where it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And we'll stop there for this point number three. The logic is clear. The logic is flawless. Step one, step two, step three. Now we've got to get everybody involved. He doesn't tell us why. I guess he assumes we're mature enough to be able to figure out what we all might be able to do. We could certainly pray. We can pray that there would be conviction of sin, that the Holy Spirit would work in this individual's heart, and there would be great conviction that they would be miserable so that they would be be repentant, so they wouldn't be miserable long term. And so we could pray for them. We're called to pray for one another anyway, but now we know more specifically how to pray. We could also apply pressure. The Bible says we're to admonish one another. Admonishing leads to growth, according to Colossians 1. And so we're going to admonish. Admonish would be to correct And so now we can all apply pressure. One went, two or three went, and now 
You say, what can, what, what can we all do? On a practical level, we would say, reach out to this person. Not like some sort of mean-spirited, judgmental person. But instead, as a loving, caring, Christ-like person. I've known of older ladies in the church who haven't known people very well who've, who've been at step three and they've written letters saying, I don't know you very well, but we're a part of the same local family, the same local church. I want you to know that I care and I'm praying for you and I'm praying for repentance and, 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 and please turn from this sin for the sake of Christ and for the sake of, of, of yourself and for the sake of your family. And you know, if little old ladies can do it, you could do it too. You can call. You can go and talk to. I've known others who've taken a little bit more aggressive approach because no one will, no, they won't talk to anyone and they've gone to find someone to say, hey, we, we, we want to help you. What can we do? That's how much we love you. But again, please notice that so far in all of this, it's not harsh. You're going because you want restoration. The goal is not to somehow excommunicate someone. The goal is that they would turn and it would be good for them. And so there's nothing in this so far that is harsh other than the perception that we have of it because of other issues that are going on in our minds. To suggest that this isn't loving is insane. You know, the most unloving thing to do is just say, let's just let it go. Think about your own kids. They're doing the wrong thing that is utterly foolish and it is going to cause them harm or if they establish this pattern, it could lead to great, 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 great harm. Well, you know. They'll learn. Who am I to say? No, you care and you say, I want to do something to help you. I realize it's not what you want me to do to help you right now. But I want to help. I want to help. It seems that we are so unloving that we have now confused what's loving or unloving by saying if you do that, you're unloving. And if you don't do that, you're loving. It's crazy. Al Mohler is probably my favorite cultural commentator from a Christian perspective. Listen to his show podcasted just about every day of the week. Al Mohler made this comment regarding this issue. The decline of church discipline is perhaps the worst visible failure of the contemporary church. I think I would tend to agree. I went to church my whole life. I didn't see anything from Matthew 18 that I can recall until I was 20 years old and didn't go to that church anymore. And if I would have been wearing dentures, they would have fallen out. <laughs> you know what dentures are? <laughs> Some of you do. 
my mouth was wide open. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Say what? This can't be happening. And I'm thinking, this is not loving. What in the world is this? I thought this was a church. You know, God is love stuff. (laughs) But I believe the Bible was true. I was a brand new Christian. And I looked in the Bible and I looked again, you know, look at the cover to make sure it's not some other religious book. (laughs) This is the Bible. Maybe I should check another translation. This is clear as could be. And it's in the New Testament. This isn't one of those, you know, kind of perceived to be funky Old Testament laws. Like you can't trim the sides of your beard. I mean, this is, in the, this is Jesus Christ who bought the church with his own blood. He's saying this is good and right and, and, and do this. Okay. Somebody leaving first service said, I've never seen this before in my life, and what a tragedy is that. Someone said to me not too long ago who was uh, going to visit, they wanted to meet, and they said, is it true that Omaha Bible Church does church discipline? And I'm thinking, oh, great. You know, yeah, let me be your whipping boy. Why are we having this meeting? I said, as a matter of fact, you know, it doesn't call it that in the Bible. We do what... It says in Matthew 18. She said, actually, that's why I wanted to have this meeting. It's actually why I want to visit. Because it's as clear as could possibly be in the Bible. She said, my fear is that it's too late for me and my family. And I'm thinking, if I only could have been part of a church that was serious about this before, maybe it would have spared my family. I don't know. I liked her. (laughs) When we give out literature and marks of a faithful church, one of the marks on that piece of literature out in the entryway, one of the ten marks would be accountability. Surely it is. Surely it is. It's as clear as could be here. Well, step four, the fourth mandatory step for purity in Christ's church is exclusion. It's exclusion and it does get harsh now. I would be lying to you if I said this isn't harsh. But it would be wrong to think the first three steps were harsh. They're not. This one is. Look at the end of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And to that we would say, yikes. That is hardcore. That is really hardcore. And it gets to the step where you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying. Then treat them like a Gentile. A Gentile is a pagan in a Jewish context. A Gentile is someone who is spiritually unclean, they're not welcome. They worship false gods other than the one true God, the God of Israel. Would be how the Old Testament mindset works. Oftentimes Gentiles were referred to as dogs. They're unclean. It's pretty harsh. Pretty strong. And Jesus uses that. 
But then he even ratchets it up, ratchets it up even more. Tax collector. You think you don't like the IRS. A tax collector. And the funny thing is, Matthew, who was recording these words, knew all about it. Matthew was a tax collector. That, that's what he did for a job. And, and what that meant was Matthew had sold his soul. Matthew's a Jewish man who is a tax collector. That means he's in bed with the Romans. That means he's prostituted his soul. That means he is going to make a buck dishonestly off of his fellow Jews with Roman support. Worse, I would even suggest to you, worse than a Gentile. Because we know Gentiles, from a Jewish mind, they're unclean, but a tax collector is a Jew who's become a traitor. He sold secrets to the other side. It is to say they're not welcome. It is to say they're traitors. Or to treat them that way. It is to be very, very harsh. It's very severe. It means they wouldn't be welcome here until there's repentance. It's pretty wild to think about if you haven't thought about it before. You know, sometimes we try to think through how we could better communicate who we are as a church. And, you know, Omaha Bible Church, that says one thing. But, you know, you look for some kind of tagline and you think, you know, what, how could we explain the fact that, you know, high view of God, sovereignty of God, believing the priority of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, so far, that's kind of tough to put on a billboard. Um, wouldn't go very good on the sign out there. Or maybe you want to take a different approach and just, you know, Omaha Bible Church, that's kind of bold and it's kind of out there. Maybe we need to say something else inviting. Maybe we need to say, Omaha Bible Church, everyone welcome. But the fact of the matter is, that wouldn't be true. Everyone isn't welcome. Man, take that out of context for a sound bite. Sheesh. Yeah. But just think about it. Oh, yes, a prostitute from downtown, if she were to make her way here after a rough night, would be welcome. Oh, yes, a man who's been out all night and he's been drunk all night and somehow he makes it in, he would be welcome. Oh, yes, unbelievers are welcome. We'll go out of our way. It's the professing Christian who says, by the fact that they say, I'm a Christian, that is in fact saying, that's shorthand for saying, I believe Jesus died for me to gain righteousness, the righteousness I need. I believe Jesus died a sinner's death for me to atone for my sins. And I believe Jesus rose again for me so that I would have freedom over sin. Now that person says, but I live in sin, and I won't repent of my sin. It's a contradiction in terms. It doesn't make any sense. 
It's a practical denial, if you will, of the resurrection. Read Romans 6. If you believe in Christ, you're united with Christ and you have new life and you're not enslaved to sin anymore. So that's really what we're getting at. Professing Christians who refuse to repent of sin wouldn't be welcome. Now maybe we'll just put that in, you know, point four font on the sign in maybe white against white. <laughs> Secret message, so we're biblical. <laughs> I want you to turn to another passage, if you will, and then we'll wrap things up. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because 1 Corinthians 5 is a commentary really on step 4. Uh, page 817, if you're new to the Bible, page 817, unless you brought your own Bible, then eight, page 817 is going to mean nothing to you. Table of contents is good. But if you have a Bible that we gave you, page 817 would be helpful. We'll probably read the whole thing. This is, this is a great complimentary passage. It's kind of you mar- right in the margin of Matthew 18. He's talking about these, these issues. I guess we do have the final verses of Matthew 18 to cover as well. I'll try to make it quick. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. doesn't seem to be incest with his actual mother, but there's a second marriage involved. And, and, and he's saying the Corinthian church is, is, is doing what unbelievers don't even do this kind of stuff typically. You, you guys are worse than unbelievers. Not even uh, reported, not even tolerated among pagans. Verse 2. And, and you are arrogant. He's going to tell us why in a second. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Paul speaking as an apostle with the authority of Christ. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. See, that's the arrogance idea from verse 2. They're bragging about it. They're they're the church that says, you know, we don't do Matthew 18 here. Everyone welcome, and they mean everyone. They're the church that boasts that we're the tolerant church. They're the Pergamum kind of church in Revelation 2. They're wearing this on their shirt sleeve. Come here, we accept everyone. And he's saying, you're so arrogant for boasting in this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he ties it to Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. For uh, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You say you're Christians. Right? And Christ has atoned for your sins. It doesn't make any sense for you to live like this and then brag about it. Verse 9. This is what I underlined this last section. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's not all, though, because he goes on to say, not at all meaning this... Oh, wait a second. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. 
i.e. unbelievers, or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You see what he's doing? Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying do Matthew 18 on unbelievers. If you were going to try to do that, you would have to leave the planet if you were looking for purity. Because, because unbelievers live like unbelievers. That's what he's getting at. Verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. See, that's Matthew 18 talk. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Implied answer is nothing. I don't judge unbelievers. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See what he's doing? He's just elaborating on Matthew 18, the fourth step. When it gets to that point, you don't even eat with them. You don't, you don't encourage him. He says, deliver him over to Satan. Why? Why would you do that? That's not loving. That's not nice. Well, actually, it's the most loving thing you can do by then because you want them to be so bleeding miserable that they would say, Uncle! They would say, Enough already! I want back! I repent! That's what he's getting at here. But it's really important that we see he's not talking about trying to get unbelievers to stop acting like unbelievers. That's dumb. In fact, it's unhealthy. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus blasted the Pharisees because they were trying to give people legalism. They would change their life. It would clean up their life. So they wouldn't do the external, you know, really bad, quote-unquote, sins anymore. And Jesus said, when they make those kind of converts, Jesus said, those converts are two times the sons of hell. Why would he say that? Well, they, they were lost before, and now they're even further. They're doubly lost because they don't even know that they have a need anymore. So please, please understand. Please don't be the person. Please don't be that guy. Please don't be that, 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 that gal trying to get unbelievers to, to stop sinning. It doesn't make any sense. They have no power, actually, to ultimately do it. Maybe they'll clean up the outside, but they can't clean up the inside. You've got to point them to Christ and point them to Christ and point them to Christ. All unbelievers welcome. But when it comes to believers who profess to be united with Christ in His resurrection, different story. Now we're accountable. Now we're accountable. It's very different. Well, let's close things out in Matthew 18. Just reading those final verses, verses that have been so confusing at times to folks that are newer to the Bible. And, and I think if you just read them in context, they'll make a lot more sense. Context determines meaning. That's how it is in other literature. It should be that way in the Bible as well. It's a regular book. It's more than a regular book, but it's not less than a regular book. And so, to alleviate any doubt about what Jesus is saying in verse 17, in verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. No idea what that means, if you take it out of context. 
you've got two or three witnesses, you've got agreement that this is a problem, you've got the whole church involved, there's not repentance. And he is, in effect, saying, the decision you made, the actions that you took, have the certification stamp, if you will, of heaven itself. You did it my way, so I agree with what you've done. You're nervous about it. You're perspiring about it. This is making you uncomfortable. What will they say about us in the community? Just know this. Heaven is on your side. What you've done on earth is an acknowledgement of what God is already thinking in heaven. And if that's not clear enough, Jesus says it another way in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Probably not a genie verse, you know. Let's just get together and agree on something and we'll rub the genie and God will give it to us. It's in the context of church discipline. So it has to do with the affirmation and support of heaven. And then verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, I would say speaking nothing to small group prayer meetings It's about discipline, the two or three, you've got witnesses, the numbers correlate. When you get together and make this decision, I'm with you. I know you're going to be scared. I know you're going to be nervous. It might be countercultural, but I'm I'm here to tell you that I'm standing next to you in effect. I like that verse. I like that verse a lot for that reason that it gives us. If you don't like this, we could just go to the other way that God does it sometimes. In Acts chapter 5, God just kills people. Um, (laughs) Read about Ananias and Sapphira, and God just struck them dead. It would be easier that way. We'd have a lot more funerals, maybe. Um, But read Acts 5. It's amazing. To the point where, you know what, that's the church that had the reputation, so to speak, where you don't want to go there. They're serious about God, and if you're not serious, you'll die. (laughs) Put that on the billboard. (laughs) Make my day. (laughs) But here's the thing. I do love Acts 5 because it says in verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. It might actually be a good church growth strategy. You want to be serious about God? That's the place to go. Or the people are serious about God. It's not a guarantee that's what's going to happen, but that's what happened at least at that particular time, and that encourages me. Pray with me if you would. God, thank you for even giving us a unique opportunity as a church today to think through some church family matters, matters of accountability. It's so easy for us to get our wires crossed. It's so easy for us to fall into the the bad thinking of trying to get people who are not Christians to act like Christians and to judge them for not acting like Christians. Help us to not do that. Help us to have a love for those people and to know that they have no resurrection power and that we can tell them about Christ. But Lord, we have been called to judge one another in the body of Christ because we are people who profess to have resurrection power by virtue of what Christ has done. 
And so help us to think clearly. Help us to be bold and courageous, compassionate and kind like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ Himself. In His name I pray, amen.